As we take up this text, I just remind you of something that I've said time and time again in our times together in the Gospels. And that is that the evangelists are writing to us, of course, to tell us what was the history of Christ's first advent, to give us an accurate picture of what transpired in his earthly ministry. But also, and this is so very crucial for our purposes this morning, they are also giving us a lively picture of the Christ who is alive. Friend, you and I, we can read of the exploits of Caesar, Alexander the Great, and of Napoleon. We can read of the great deeds done even by men of the past, godly men, Athanasius, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Samuel Rutherford. But all of those men, friend, are dead. They've gone to the place, the latter category, to that place where the spirits of just men are made perfect. But the Christ who we are confronted with in the pages of the gospel is a Christ who is still ministering to his people. A personal Christ who is still engaged in the self-same work that you and I see in a text like ours this morning, bringing souls to himself, instructing them in his own ways. Friend, we cannot lose sight of that when we come to these, these passages of God's word. We're here confronted with the Christ who is. May that be a thought that looms over our meditations this morning. Just to remind you where we find ourselves in this text, you remember that the immediate context is really what you find in the verses preceding, where, where Christ, as it were, takes his disciples aside. And for a moment, he, he, he really instructs them in something about himself. He, he shows them of, of his own eagerness to be about his Father's work. He shows them that, that it was not a small thing, it was not an insignificant thing to him to be engaged in conversation with this woman of Samaria. In fact, it was a work that he delighted in more than the physical nourishment that his human frame required. In these, those first verses, he instructs his disciples to see something of his own heart. The God-man eager to seek and save that which is lost. But then you remember that at the end of that, the purpose is, is really to drive his disciples to that self-same disposition. He urges them to see the world around them as a field that is white, ready for harvest. And, and he's really urging them to take upon themselves like affection. Surely don't you desire, don't you desire to see such souls harvested for the glory of God and for their own eternal salvation? That's the immediate context. But behind that, of course, in the background, beyond this conversation with Christ and his disciples, you have obviously the woman who has left her water pot as Christ is in discourse with his own, and she has gone to her countrymen, and she is now explaining to them that she has found the Christ, the Savior of the world. She once a woman ostracized by society goes to the very people who had made her an outcast. And she goes to tell them that there is living water to be found from the one who sat with her, conversed with her at Jacob's well. It's that background 
that, that subcontext that really comes to the fore in our passage this morning. Because in the 39th verse, the evangelist tells us that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman. The city that we're referring to, as we find in verse 5 of chapter 4, is that of Sychar. And so we find here the conversion of a good portion of this city. We have the, we have the conversion of Sychar. But as the evangelist presents to us this general conversion, I want you to notice that he has two points of emphasis. The first point of emphasis is that what we just read in verse 39. They believed on him for the saying of the woman. The evangelist makes it a point to tell us what was the instrument that drove them to Christ in the first place. It was the saying of the woman. But then I want you to notice this. At verse 41, again, as a point of emphasis, the evangelist tells us, more believed because of his own word. And so you have two, really, you really two foci. You have the first point, and that is those who believed because they heard the testimony of the woman, and those who believed of Sychar who heard the preaching of Christ himself. Well, you find here, friend, or two, two points that we can't miss. First of all, the evangelist tells us that more believed because of hearing Christ himself. But then secondly, I want you to notice that the preaching of Christ inculcated in the, in the Sicarians a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of faith. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of what you find in verse 42. Look down there just with me for a moment. They say unto the woman, Now we believe. And, and why? Because we have heard him ourselves and know. Now I want you to notice this. First of all, the people that are in view here in verse 42 are not the many more who believed in Jesus after hearing him themselves. And why is that? We can say that because first of all, they say, Now we believe. But now there is something of an adversative. They're saying, before we believed because of your testimony. But now we believe because we have heard him ourselves. In other words, the people who are speaking in verse 42 are the self-same people who went to Christ after hearing the testimony of the woman. But the second thing I want you to notice this too is that though they believed in a sense before upon the testimony of the woman, they are saying that they now know him, believe in him in a different way. And what is so central to this 42nd verse, the point of difference for these people, is Christ's own tutelage. They have sat under his ministry in a unique way. Sure, they believed the testimony of Christ as they received it from the woman before. But now under Christ's personal ministry, they see something different. They've been trained, tutored in a different way. Now, friend, the first thing I have to ask as we look at this text and the entirety of these verses together is, is why is this included? Why, why not simply tell us that, that Sychar was converted to Christ and leave it at that? 
Well, why not simply say that many Samaritans believed and then, and then move swiftly to the next episode in this portion of Christ's life? Friend, I want you to notice that the evangelist, as he is the inspired historian, he doesn't leave us there, obviously, but he also doesn't really call our attention to a number of things about Sychar itself. We don't know about the numbers, for instance. How many of Sychar were converted? We don't know. Neither do we know really the after history of these converts. No, the point that we are given, the point that is for us and for them, is that souls require Christ's tutelage. They need to be under his personal ministry. That is the point of emphasis. The evangelist tells us about those who believed because of the testimony of the woman, but then he tells us that those self-same ones, well, they believed in a different way after having Christ's ministry personally applied. Friend, that's the point of emphasis for our, for our purposes this morning. And this, this instruction, friend, is so relevant for ourselves. We need to know that this personal tutelage given by Christ is necessary for them as well as for us because of texts like what you have in Romans 10. In Romans 10, we're told, as the apostles asking how our souls converted, he asks, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Friend, I wish I could, I wish I could say this from the mountaintops. The apostle believes in a Christ who speaks today. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? He's saying that they all, all who are converted, must in one sense be like the Sicarians and be under Christ's personal tutelage, under his personal ministry, if they are to believe. And the apostle in Romans 10 says that is a present reality. You and I, we need to be under the tutelage that these ones of Sychar were under. And the evangelist is showing us then not something that was purely historical. He's showing us a pattern for all who are saved. One must be personally by Christ taught of him. And that is our theme this morning, that Christ imparts saving knowledge of himself. Christ imparts saving knowledge of himself. And I want us to look at that under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the intimation of Christ that is given to souls. Then I want us to see the illumination which he and he only provides. And then finally, I want us to see the inclination of souls to those self-same truths, also wrought by his spirit. And so take, first of all, the intimation, how souls are notified of this Christ. In verse 39, again, as we read, we're told that these ones of Samaria, they believed on him for the saying of the woman. And again, the evangelist is very pointed here. He's making quite explicit and, and emphatic that it was the instrumentality of the woman's testimony that drew the Sicarians out to Jacob's well to hear Christ. And then we're told what was the sum and substance of this testimony. She said to them, he told me all that ever I did. Well, it's quite striking. Really, the, the, the evangelist here is, is summarizing the apologetic element of her testimony. Showing them, giving them an evidence why she believes this one to indeed be the Christ. 
And then we're told in verse 40 that the Samaritans did come to him. Meaning that this testimony was effectual. God really did use this once disreputable woman to to bring Samaritans to Christ. And from what you and I learn from this is that Christ then does employ his people's testimonies. He does employ his people's testimonies. And I, I think, friend, we need to step back from the text and see this, perhaps in a way we haven't before. I want you to notice that in our text, this woman's testimony was formed by Christ. As we saw in verses 9 to 25, you remember how this woman only met Christ with scorn. You remember how time and time again, Christ's invitations to take of what he was freely offering were met with rebuffs. And now, now she's a woman who goes to her countrymen and she pleads with them to see this Christ. And how, friend, was that transition accomplished? This woman's testimony, friend, was formed by Christ. It wasn't formed by herself. Again, we see her scorn very evident in the beginning. No, Christ patiently, graciously forms of this woman one who would be a vessel to draw others to himself. But I want you to notice, friend, that this formation really takes on two, two, different, two different points of emphasis. The first one is that of knowledge. Before, she thinks of Christ as, as merely a presumptive Jew. Now you want something to do with Samaritans, given that you have nothing to draw, to draw water from this well. Now, after all of those years of animosity, now you can use the hand of a Samaritan. And then, slowly through the conversation, you find that she comes to the conclusion that this this one with whom she's speaking must be something of a prophet. And then she comes to the knowledge that, no, this is is a greater than Moses, a greater than Elijah. This is Christ. Her knowledge has changed. And what you find here, friend, is that not only did this knowledge change but there was affection attached to it. Not to review too much what we've already covered, but I remind you that when she goes to her countrymen, she says, come, see with me. That's the sense of the Greek. In the original, the idea is not go and see him for yourselves. The idea is come with me and see him. She She is leaving her water pot at the well, yes, but her purpose is to go back to his side. He has exposed her, friend. Her heart is laid bare. And yet, she's drawn to him. And in such a way that she leaves him only to draw others to go to his side as well. Previously, she met met this man with, with nothing but contempt. And now, friend, her heart is so inclined to him that she must go herself again to his side. And bring her countrymen with her. Even though, friend, he sees her heart for what it is and she knows it. Even though it's very evident that Christ sees the root of the matter with her sin. She rejoices in the fact that she's found him. Even if that means she lays low. 
But the second thing, and, and this we could quickly overlook, is Christ formed of this woman a, a vessel, an instrument to bring others to himself, not only by drawing her with new knowledge of himself and a new heart for him, but, but you recognize something. This woman now has a heart for her countrymen who once had ostracized her. I think that's one of the most staggering elements of this text. You remember she's out drawing at this well at the time of day that she is because she was an outcast. Because the Samaritans, very evidently, and and for good reason, saw her as a disreputable woman. And yet, notwithstanding, notwithstanding the opposition that she met with for all of those reasons, and many of them merited, she goes back to the very ones who had cut her off. And so, friend, what you recognize here is not only does she have a love for Christ, drawing, drawing her heart after him, but, friend, she goes to the very ones who had cut her off from society. And she longs for them to see him as well. It's a staggering element of the text that we shouldn't miss. But I also want you to notice this too, friend, that Christ does make this woman a vessel to draw others to himself. And he's pleased to make her weak and disreputable as she was. An instrument to draw Samaritans to a saving knowledge of himself. I want you to notice, friend, that her privilege was, was incredible. Nicodemus, because of his unbelief, would not be so used. Though a Pharisee, though well-skilled in the word of God. In some ways, friend, her privilege in this moment even exceeds that which the prophets of old enjoyed. They pointed, of course, they pointed souls to Christ as one anticipated. But this woman has the unique privilege of calling to the Samaritans and saying, come and see him. Friend, she was a rebel to God. She was an outcast among her own countrymen. And yet God was pleased to give her such a privilege, to make her such a vessel. Of course, friend, you and I see this, don't you? You see this all throughout the scriptures, that God does this kind of work, where he makes that which is low and lowly, that which was once an enemy, made a preacher, a vessel. But I want to highlight something, friend, that we can't miss in this text, because she's not made a preacher. This this woman is simply going to her countrymen and telling them, as a fellow countryman, that she's found Christ. We, friend, ought to remember that there's a pattern here that that can't be ignored. In Acts 8, you find these words, that Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women and committed them to prison. But then he says this, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. The they there, The antecedent is those who were scattered. Not just apostles, not just evangelists, but all of the church. And then he says they went about preaching the word. Now what's very important, friend, is what you and I see in Acts 8 is the very self-same thing you and I see in John 4. That's the kind of thing that both writers are alluding to. In fact, in the original language, the word is used and is quite specifically applied to this kind of thing. The word is euangelizio from the word which we get, evangelist or evangelism. 
Now, that's Acts 8.4, where everyone is supposed to be, as it were, evangelizing. But when you come to Acts 8.5, you find something else. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ. Now, in our English translations, the word is the same. It's not the same in the original. In Acts 8.5, what Peter is doing, sorry, what Philip is doing, is Caruso. Why am I making this point? Well, friend, I want you to notice that in this text, and like Acts 8 as well, you and I are not supposed to understand that everybody is to be preaching in the self-same way. Uh, in fact, as Acts 8.5 clearly indicates, the New Testament knows something that's very specific to ministers of the gospel. Theirs is a work of caruzzo. They are to be charismatic, truly. And that's actually the word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe what is specifically the work of those who are ordained. The public proclamation of God's word is not for all. But evangelism? Friend, that's given to the entirety of the church. Speaking as this woman does to her countrymen. Going back and telling them on a very personal level that they have found Christ. And that's for all. That is not only for those ordained. And this woman is a very clear indication of that. The church that was scattered, the men and women there described in Acts 8. Another example of the same truth. And so, friend, as you look at this text, we're supposed to remember that though not all preach, all are to be engaged in the kind of work this woman is engaged in. And as a pastor, if I can make just an aside, friend, we can have missions, we can do door-to-door work, uh, friend, we can, we can put flyers out and all kinds of things. What you have in John 4 and in Acts 8 is a very clear indication that the ordinary way of drawing souls under the sound of the preaching of God's word is by simply doing what the woman of Samaria was doing. Friend, that, that should not be lost on us. Friend, why was it that, that, that she was used by God to be such an instrument? Why was it that the church in Acts 8 was used in such a way, but that God was pleased to make it this way? That his people, as they simply converse with their fellow countrymen about Christ, that these things would draw men under the sound of his word, and so to Christ himself. There's no substitute for that. Friend, all the doors that we could knock, all the flyers we could print, all the missions we could hold will not substitute for this work. And so what you and I find here, friend, is that the woman was used as an instrument to draw men and women under the sound of the preaching of Christ. And so, friend, we ought to strive to be in many ways like this woman, urging men and women from our own knowledge of Christ, to come and hear him. But that's the intimation. The intimation that Christ makes of himself through the woman. What of the illumination? Our second point. I want you to notice in verse 41, again, the evangelist is very clear. These ones believed because of his own word. And again, in verse 42, he says, they say to the woman, we have heard, but we know ourselves that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. 
The first point I want to make here is that you recognize the woman here. She, she's not told them anything that is essentially different than what they themselves confess to have known. She says that this is the Christ. And so at the end of verse 42, they say exactly the same thing. This is the Christ, the Savior of the world. There's no different, there's no difference in terms of the substance of knowledge. They know the same things in an objective sense. So what is different? Well, from very obviously, they know this truth in a different way. She told them that this was the Christ. They now know that this is the Christ, but in a different manner. They know him in a deeper, in a new way. And it is through his ministry. And what you and I learn here, friend, is that Christ must convince sinners himself. That was true then, but but it's true today. Christ must convince sinners himself if they are to be saved. In verses 39 and 42, then, you have two different kinds of belief. You have a belief that is notional. In other words, these Samaritans, initially, they they heard the reasonableness of the woman's testimony. And they say, surely this must then be the Christ. They had a notional knowledge, a notional conviction that this was the Son of God. But then I want you to notice at the end of verse 42, their confession of faith makes this knowledge not notional, but personal. We know. We know that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. It goes from notional to saving. And in many ways, friend, that distinction between the belief of verse 39 and the belief of verse 42 very much keeps with the theme that you and I have been looking at all the way back in chapter 2. Where there, Christ is very clearly indicating a distinction between a kind of belief in him that is false and a kind that is true, in which he instructs Nicodemus in chapter 3. No, the ones who confess that this is Christ in verse 42 are those who have a real, a saving knowledge. Not only a notional, but a real, a saving knowledge of Christ. And it came from him. We we can't miss that the evangelist is emphasizing this point. It is under his ministry particularly that this knowledge came. What this text shows us is what we often call the doctrine of illumination. Illumination is simply when Christ, by his Spirit, presses truth upon souls, which is then embraced by them by faith. That's the doctrine of illumination, where Christ, as tutor, takes that which is true and so presses these truths upon souls that they acquiesce in these truths by faith. Certainly, friend, our text is a a glimmering example of of that doctrine. Another example of it is what you and I have in Romans 10. I already said to you that the text in the original reads, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? But you might ask at this point, well, how is this something that is perennially true? Christ's public ministry, of course, came to an end after three years. Nobody can go, as it were, as the Sakarians could, to, to the well and find Christ physically, bodily present. Well, that's where the apostle continues. After saying, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? He then goes on to say, and how shall they hear? And the sense is, how shall they hear him without a preacher? 
I don't think we fully grasp, friend, the profundity behind what the Apostle is arguing. He's saying if any are to believe, they must hear, as the Sicarians heard, the voice of Christ. And then he goes on to say, how is the voice of Christ heard today? But by a preacher. Now, that text alone, friend, certainly should cause us to reflect. But that's not the only passage of Scripture where the Apostle makes that kind of argument. Look with me just for a second. If you could, turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 21. Speaking to the church here, he says, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now this is such an important text and ties very much in with the very truth that you and I find in our passage. Ye have heard him and been taught by him. The apostle does not say you have heard about him or have been taught about him. He is saying to this Gentile body, you have heard him, have been taught by him, if indeed you are believers. The apostle is saying that Christ himself has taught them. That Christ, personally, as redeemer of his people, as prophet in Zion, has instructed these Ephesian Christians. But how? Just cast your eyes up to verse 11 and following. There the apostle tells us how they have heard Christ. How they have been taught of him. Note verses 11 to 14, he explains that Christ, the ascended Christ, has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for perfecting of the saints, till all come in the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, etc., etc. This may seem a bit of a bypath, but friend, I think it's so very important. What you and I learn in this text is that Christ still teaches. And in fact, the apostle says he must teach for any to, be, to, for any to believe. In which case then, friend, what you and I have in John 4 is not an analogy of the doctrine of illumination. It's something so much more. Because these passages reinforce for us that you and I must be like the Sicarians. We must be personally instructed by Christ if we are to be savingly brought to a knowledge of Him. We must be taught of Him. We must hear Him. And it must be through the sound of His preached Word, the faithful proclamation of His Word, that we must be so tutored. And friend, what you find in this text is then the effect that such teaching has. When Christ, through the proclamation of His Word, instructs souls in this way, it brings them to faith. We know indeed, says the Sicarians, that this is the Christ. Friend, as we step back from this text and apply it to ourselves, there is a basic question. If we've been paying attention to how the apostles continue to see the imminent ministry of Christ, 
The question for you and for me is, did we come here to hear Christ? Did we come here to hear Christ this morning? If we were in the first century, if you were, as it were, translated from the 21st to the first century for a moment, and you were there in Jerusalem, and you had heard that Christ was there preaching, that you could, be, that you could hear him, be taught by him, well, friend, you and I, I know, we would fight through, fight through crowds to be present. We would be there in earnest, and we would be there eagerly awaiting whatever word would drop from his mouth. But friend, when you and I, we gather under the preaching of God's word, as the apostle says in Ephesians 4, we should have that same kind of desire. Not trusting ourselves to a preacher, but trusting that when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and his people are earnest and prayerful in seeking his voice, that he is pleased still to be heard by his people, that he is still pleased to teach his people, and that it's himself, the selfsame Christ who taught the Sicarians. Friend, is the selfsame Christ that you can hear through his own word this morning. And so have we come this morning to hear him? I hope you didn't come here to hear me. I wouldn't come here to hear me. Have you come here to hear him? The second point, friend, that I, the third point, rather, that I draw as we close, is that not only does this Christ illuminate the Sicarians so that they have a personal knowledge of himself, but he also inclines them. To himself. In verse 42, they say, we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so you, fret, you see, friend, that they are quite willing to ascribe this glorious confession of faith to the one with whom they are now conversing. And in verse 40, we're told that these are the selfsame ones who besought him that he would tarry with them. And what you see here is a wonderful marriage between faith and affection. They now know that this is the Christ and they long to be with him. They long for him to remain among them. How wonderfully does this contrast with Jerusalem, with Nazareth and Galilee, as we'll see, God willing, this evening. No, these ones had an inclination to Christ. What you find here, friend, is that Christ must also instruct hearts to have this affection for him as well. They must be inclined by his illumination. In fact, the older theologians, when they talk about the doctrine of illumination, they, they divide illumination into two categories. There's a theoretical illumination and a practical. Theoretical illumination is when one is convinced of the truth of the faith, that they are convinced that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. But that practical illumination is whenever they see his loveliness, when he is altogether desirable in their eyes. And this too, friend, is a work of the Spirit of Christ. We see that in our text. Friend, you know, I want you to notice that, again, they're, not, they're, they're, they're certainly not willing to begrudge Christ the highest, the highest title. That this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. He is worthy of all of that honor and glory. I also want you to see here, friend, that in this, you have a wonderful display of humility. 
These were Samaritans. And if we were paying attention to the interactions with Christ and the Samaritan woman in the preceding verses, you'll notice the Samaritans, they were a very proud people. Again, they were the ones who described themselves as the conservative worshippers of Jehovah. They were the ones who said it was, it was the Jews who had made defection. They were the true spiritual heirs of Jacob. But now, friend, in a moment, sitting under the instruction of Christ, they cast away all of that seeming and, all that seeming and pretended aspirations to piety, and all that they do is they lay hold of him. Let all of their previous accolades, all of their previous professions die. In fact, friend, what you find in this text wonderfully is they don't use the Samaritan word for redeemer. They use, friend, the word of the prophets to describe this Christ. They throw off their old traditions, no matter how once they well loved them. Just now sitting under the tutelage of Christ, Friend, they are content with him. That all of their other titles and aspirations die. But thirdly, I want you to notice this. And friend, I don't think I'm extracting anything from the text that's not there. These ones have been drawn to a spirit of charity. Not only of love to Christ, but of love to those who profess him. The reason why I say that, friend, is because in verse 42, the evangelist makes a very clear point to say that these ones turned to the woman and spoke with her. Not only saying that they have found the truth which she herself had testified to be so, but there's a point, friend, in which you see those two groups of people the woman of Samaria, the woman who is disreputable, the woman who is an outcast, now they're willing to speak with her. She couldn't draw water with anyone else before. But now, friend, they, they are drawn to her to join with her in this profession of faith. They converse with a woman whom once, with whom once they were estranged. A friend, this practical illumination is also given to us in the scriptures elsewhere and is also directly tied to Christ's personal ministry today in his church. If you were to go back to Ephesians 4, you'll notice that it's this practical illumination that the apostle stresses where he says, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful, deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man after which God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. Note, friend, how the apostle ties the Ephesians' increase in godliness back to the personal, ongoing ministry of Christ through the public proclamation of his word in the church. He says, if you have heard him, if you've been taught by him, then, friend, it is such an instruction that will make you more like Christ. This is, friend, so very important, I think, for our text. As we close, 
I said to you already that we need to remember that the gospel writers are presenting to us a picture of Christ, not only to fill in, as it were, the chronology of his public ministry, but in light of the text that we've just read, to show us the kind of ministry that Christ is still engaged in, whereby he, under the sound of his word, still draws souls in this way personally to a knowledge of himself that is not only theoretical, but is effective in conforming them into his likeness. In that way, friend, our text is not an analogy of what Christ is still doing. It is simply an illustration. It is simply one vignette of a present reality. Christ is still to be heard. Christ is still teaching today. And obviously the question is, are we like the Sicarians? Friend, have we heard him? Or are you hearing me? Are you hearing other ministers? But not the voice of Christ. So very important to make that distinction. And the second question, I suppose, is related to the, the example of the Samaritan woman. Are you calling others to come under the sound of his voice as well? That's a work for everyone in the church. It was the work for everyone in the church in Acts 8. It's the work of the woman in John 4. If we've tasted of Christ, are we sharing this earnest desire that they too would hear his voice? Are we saying, come and see? Well, you see, friend, in this text is a wonderful picture of, of how Christ continues to teach. But I want you to remember what we looked at before, several weeks ago. For our comfort, friend, we're told that Christ was eager, so eager to speak with this woman that he was pleased to be denied those physical nourishments that his body required. Even though physically he was at a point of fainting, such that, as it were, he collapses on the side of the wall. That's the idea in the beginning of John 4. Yet he is willing, eager, patient, and tender to instruct the woman and to become tutor to the Sicarians. Friend, here you have a picture of Christ's zeal, his faithfulness, his patience in the work of illumination. And what I, I would say to you, friend, is I would say to you as Christians who often need to be reminded of this truth, Christ is no less patient, no less zealous, no less, no less faithful in that work today than he was in the first century. The Christ who you and I are to hear and to be taught of today is a Christ who is still as zealous as he was, still as earnest as he was when he sat at Jacob's well and he spoke to the Samaritans. And that should be our comfort, beloved, for you and I who feel so very, so very slightly 
slightly initiated in the school of Christ, we have a patient tutor, a zealous tutor. For our exhortation, this text urges us to be like the woman. Uh, Friend, you and I must be willing to call others to come under the sound of his voice. You and I must be earnest in this this labor. Again, friend, there is no substitute for this. Uh, I, your elders, will not come in contact with the same folks you will. But you and I are called to be like the woman together here. Call them to come under the sound of his word. But the second point, friend, I'd remind you is that you and I are to remember that Christ is still to be heard today. You and I still must seek illumination from his spirit today. And so, friend, how do we prepare? How do we attend? And what kind of zeal do we have in hearing his word? May it be, friend, as we leave a text like this, it would be our earnest cry that we would find the self-same Christ that the Sicarians did, one who is willing to instruct even great sinners in the knowledge, the saving knowledge of himself. May we come prepared, may we come zealous to hear Christ. Amen.